0: many episodes, it's been building to a particular uh, moment. That moment, actually, I'm happy to tell you this morning, is upon us. This is, this is a high mark uh, in Jesus' ministry where he will actually particularly ask that one question that we have uh, consecutively been asking, is who is Jesus Christ? Here is Jesus before his uh, disciples in a more private conversation. Uh, and it's always like that. That the, the moments in the Gospels we learn the most about Jesus Christ, it happens to always be this way, in the more private, small conversations he has with those who are his disciples. So you'll see here, Matthew 16, verse uh, 13. It was right after the Pharisees came and asked for a sign, The Pharisees and Sadducees asked to see a sign from heaven so they might know uh, who he is. And Jesus said, I will not show you who I am. And he let them go. Right after that, Jesus goes to, to his disciples and asks, now who am I? It says this, this is the word of God. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's remarkable. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Again. Who is he? This is who I am. Now don't tell anybody about it. Mystery. Mystery. Why? See, Jesus took his disciples to this area spoken of as Caesarea Philippi. Now, as far as we're aware, in all of the Gospels, this is uh, potentially the the furthest north uh, that Jesus ever went. Uh, From Jerusalem. He's way up north. More than where he was when he was evidently feeding um, the 5,000. Or feeding the 4,000. The 4,000 were told he was near the region of Tyre and Sidon. Which is far north. But even here now. Caesarea Philippi. He's way out of region. Way out of location. That's important. It's important that we know why he said it here and now. His question particularly is, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who am I? Now he says the word particularly, Son of Man. That's the very ambiguous title in all of Scripture. Because Son of Man just means you're born of a human. And so when he asks the question, who do you think I am? Because I have uh, five uh, fingers here, and five fingers here, and five toes here, and five toes here, like you. So who am I? Am I just a carpenter's son? How they rejected me in Nazareth? And then, of course, we know the story of how Herod killed John the Baptist, and Jesus became very popular. And what happened? Herod said, John the Baptist has come back to life. And so, of course, Jesus says, am I like John the Baptist? Or am I like one of the other prophets? Who do people say? And as we've seen through this whole episode of these sermon series, is that everyone is trying to answer that question, and everyone's getting it wrong, except for the ones who are his disciples, except for the ones who have bowed before him in faith to say, Oh Lord, show me yourself. And then he reveals himself in marvelous glory. So the response, of course, is they say, some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say one of the prophets. See, Jeremiah was a prophet that had uh, tremendous sorrow. Um, he was the one who uh, preached about all doom. Uh, Elijah was a prophet by the Jews who are supposed to be looked at as like someone coming at the end of the age, a turn of a new epoch. So they're thinking about him, they know he's important, and he's probably some type of prophet like we would have in the Old Testament. Jesus pauses all of their answers and then pivots. He transitions the question from being, what do they say out there, to the personal question. This is a question for us this morning. This is a question for his children. Now, who do you say that I am? Who do you believe me to be? See, it's not the crowd. It's not the king's. It's not about the Pharisees or the Sadducees now. He flips the question for you to consider this morning, which is you and me, who do we, who do you say that he is? He points it right down to the center. See, the place that he asked this question. It's called Caesarea Philippi. It was named by Herod the Great's son, Philip, who built the city up and renamed it after Caesar Augustus. And in order to make um, uh, good friends, uh, he said, Hey, how about we put both our names on it? Because you're kind of like the Caesar that's running the whole empire, and I'd like to be your friend. So, uh, Caesar Philippi? You want to call this town that? We can be buddies and maybe you can get me promoted. So that's the name of the city. But it used to be called a different name. It used to be called the city of Pan. Panias was the name before it was changed. Back when the Greeks occupied it, not the Romans. That's interesting. See, If you'd go online and look it up, or even travel there, tour guides, there's a tremendous history to this city. Because the city was actually dedicated to a Greek god named Pan. That Greek god was the god for shepherds, uh, the god for people who were um, herders and kept flocks. Now, if you watch anything on TV with mythology, or these kind of things, you see images, you'll recognize this image. It's a man with a human torso, but his feet are like the feet of a goat. And uh, he would have a uh, series of reeds um, that he would play as a pipe. And they would ascend from shorter to longer. And it was called a pan pipe. You hear the term. Well, he was a kind of god that would scare everybody about death, and when you were thought to be frightened for a causeless reason, you just went into um, a big fit of um, fear that was called a panic. That's where the word comes from. You see, the Greek was "panikos," and it means to be afraid but it comes from being visited by the god Pan. Scary things. Scariest of all was the temple of this god in Panias. Where did Pan live? He lived, as far as the Greeks were concerned, in a very big cave that you could see today. And that was his temple. And the cave, they believed, went down very deep they thought it went to, well, the place of the dead. So people would take goats and sacrifice them and throw them into the cave, try to keep the fear away, particularly the fear of death. The entrance to that gate, the door was the door of death. It was called the gate of Hades, the gate of hell, the place in which Jesus said, shall never prevail against his church. He decided to wait to say that here and in this time. My friends, I hope you can see that if you can answer this question that was given to them with the same force and the same faith as how Peter responded you would do well who is Jesus Christ the question remains he says now who do you say that I am if you can answer that question you are free from everything You are free from the fear of the grave. You are free from the fear of condemnation, from death and corruption, and all the toils and trials of this life. You will pass through them freely, freely. Peter, before all the other disciples, stands forward with his head high and his chest out, as he always would, whether he's right or wrong. And this time he's right. And he simply says, Now, you, Jesus, I know who you are. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. The living God. The God who is alive, who we sang earlier, cannot change. His life is not contingent upon us. We sang, You are not a God who needs any human hands. You are the son of the living God. There is no one who can take life from you. You are life. And Jesus, you are that Messiah for that God. There at the threshold of the throne of death. That confession, that faith to understand who Jesus Christ is, it's mixed up with so much mystery and ambiguity. Because not only when he says, now who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man could be so many people. You and I are sons and daughters of men. But there's even more ambiguity in what Peter has just said. Because he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Son of God. That actually doesn't solve much. Because... Many people had ideas of what the Messiah was, the Christ was, and many people had ideas of what it meant to be a Son of God. The point is that it comes to this point in the gospel where the disciples have been walking with him now for a while. And though the words are the same oh, yes, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of God there's something different here where Jesus pauses. And realizes that Peter has actually progressed. He has moved in his knowledge of God to a level in which he pauses and says, Oh Peter, you have no idea that you did not figure that out yourself. The Lord, my Father, not flesh and blood. He has been revealing to you my true nature. See, it's really like um, this famous um, skit you probably heard of, at least in part, was uh, back in the 1950s. Uh, Abbott and Costello, right? I just say that and you guys are already laughing. I don't know if they knew that they were going to be like internet famous because they didn't know there was an internet. But the skit goes this way. These two guys, they run this skit and they do it hundreds of times all across America, it becomes famous. It's a man talking to the manager of a baseball team. And he says, you know, I'd like to know uh, the names of your players. Well, and the manager says uh, very simply, well, our first baseman, who? Who is on first? And, of course, he responds and says, yes, that's what I would like to find out. And he says, yeah, who is on first? No, 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 no. Who is on first? He says, yes. Right? It's famous because then he goes on to say, no, I want to know the fellow's name. Who? I'm not asking the question. They go back and forth. But you see, the question of Jesus is, now, who do you say that I am? Oh, it's simple enough. You're Christ, the Son of God. Yes. What does that mean? Messiah, anointed. Craig Blomberg, a New Testament scholar that outlines many conceptions of Christ that we are aware of in the first century. People thought of the Christ Christ is either something to be completely abandoned. See, about 100 years ago, before Jesus arrived, there was this thing called a Maccabean Revolt, in which actually the Jewish people took back their freedom from Greek overlords. But what happened was, they were just as corrupt as the Greeks. And so they thought it was a Messianic movement, so they tried the Messianic movement, and they said that doesn't work. They forfeited it. So Messiah doesn't even mean much for many of the Jews in Jesus' day. Some thought the Messiah should have been a great priest-king who was going to free uh, free, um, uh, Israel of all this corruption, and they ran away and became sectarians, kind of like the Amish or the Mennonites. They were called the Qumran sect on the south. And they were looking for a Messiah, but their idea of the Messiah was completely different than others. The idea of a Messiah, most popularly, if you were to speak to an average person in Jerusalem at the time, Craig Blomberg says that it would have been someone that is just simply looking for a violent warrior king, someone to take over and to run the show. Of course, we knew about these people in the New Testament. They're called the zealots. Less famously, there's other categories of people called uh, the zikari, which means dagger men. So in the time of Jesus, understand, people were running through the city stabbing other people, just as acts of terrorism, um, just to overthrow the government. And they thought they were doing something for the Christ. The Messiah. Even today, if you were to speak to a modern Jew, they would understand the Messiah most likely to be just some great sage or teacher. Nothing more. That's not what Peter was saying. If you expel all the concepts of religion or scripture or the gospel, it's hardwired into our brains to think with a messiah type of complex. There's problems in the world. People want to find solutions, so they turn to violence. You have fascism. You have communism, Marxism, anarchism, or extreme nationalism. Just go to war to solve all your problems. Nothing's changed. Everyone's looking for a messiah. I do know, the answer then maybe is, you need a great sage, Great wisdom teacher, like they look for in their Messiah. But see, we've tried that again, too. No, it can't be religion. It can't be this. It can't be that. We'll have an enlightenment. We'll know more. We'll be wise. We'll have reason. We'll look for wisdom, knowledge. That will be our Savior. Education. There's a story that's not that well known, it was in um, uh, the French Revolution. They actually uh, paid an actress uh, to dress up as Lady Liberty. Um, They had a great festival and they drove out all the clergy into the great cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. Well, they actually brought her through with candles and fanfare and music and they worshipped her as the goddess of reason. And then they proceeded to slaughter 40,000 people. False messiahs are all around. They'll never go away. Jesus has never been impressed by people who misunderstood him. There was something that Paul that, that, that Peter said when he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that paused Jesus in his tracks to say, well done. The idea of being a son of God could mean that you're an angel, a demon, spiritual being, a great leader, a charismatic leader, a powerful, influential person, or the Messiah. Even the phrase Son of God doesn't really mean much. It all has to do with the context of what's being given to us in the gospel, you see. At the very beginning of his birth, Jesus was miraculously born of Mary. And the angel Gabriel came to her and said, Now the child born to you will be called son of God. That begins the gospels. See, as Christians we say, the gospel. Let everyone define Messiah the way they wish. Let everyone define son of God the way they wish. But we who believe the gospel will define it this way. That there was a miraculously born man who was called the Son of God. He was born by the Spirit of God. In a more literal and realistic way than anyone else, he is beginning from his story, the Son of God. And he begins his ministry and goes into the water of baptism and emerges. And the Father speaks, this is my Son and whom I am well pleased And then immediately from there he goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by all the wiles of the devil and all the carnality of our flesh. All the sins that you and I have always failed from. Every sin that we've ever turned to, where we should have turned away. He goes in there and Satan says to him in his temptation, If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And because he was the son of God. He did not command these stones to become bread. Because I as the son of God says. I always will seek to do the will of my father. And I will never test my father. My God. That's the beginning. Leading to the climax. In which his parting words are this. That we realize. That the son of God. That Jesus Christ is. Is not like any son of God. Go therefore. Baptize them in the name, single, not names, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is a Son of God who is equal with God. He shares the same singular, trifold name interwoven in His sonship. Surely you are the Christ, Peter says, the son of the living God. You find in all of this the reality of your life and mine. That if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you progress in that knowledge in beautiful ways. In chapter 14, Peter and all the other apostles already professed him to be the Son of God. When Jesus walked on water and he brought Peter back in the boat dripping wet and said it was a nice try, I love you, and here I am. He saved him from sinking in the waves. Do you know what they all did? They bowed down and worshipped him and said, truly, you are the Son of God. But you see, it means more now. He's been walking with the Lord longer now and he's beginning to see that his ideas of what he was saying about the lord mean more yet the words are the same but they're imported with all the meaning it's like a marriage that first day you stand there in front of everybody and say i love you the wedding ceremony And then you say it after 12 months. And you still mean it. Then you say it after 12 years. The words sound the same. I love you. The first day of the marriage to the 12th year of the marriage, we all know those aren't the same words. There has been a lot of tears and suffering and a lot of sacrifice and a lot of giving. So, after that time, to say, I love you. I've had this experience. Maybe you have. I have thought and meditated on the lordship, the the grandiose, majestic lordship of Jesus. And there have been times in my life in which I've paused and said, I've never even understood you to be Lord before. Even though I've confessed you to be my Lord for years. There's a reality in which, no, he really has my heart. Like, I would never want to disobey him. Like, much more now than ever before, even though I still will fail. But I will fail less because he's so much more my Lord than he was five years ago. You see, or you say, like, I know God loves me because the Bible tells me so. And I sing songs about it. But then I meditate, and the Spirit of God pours upon my heart over years, and I say, oh, the tenderness of His love and mercy. Like when I say, the Lord Jesus has loved me, it means so much more now, that I know Him more now, that I profess Him differently, but I only have the same simple human speech. All I can say is that He loves me. It's that kind of thing with Peter. I've been saying, Jesus, that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says it again now. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. This kind of revelation. Where does it come from? The reality is, Jesus clearly points, this is a do you know what I'm talking about? That is a gift. If you have moved on the spectrum of your love toward him and his love toward you, that this intimate knowledge, love you have of God, that is a gift. It has been granted to you. He's drawing you to him, you see. He's pulling you in. The hint Of all this, as we know that Jesus is now starting to tap into his disciples, particularly Peter as a leader, that they can properly understand the identity of Jesus, but they have yet not comprehended his mission or his purpose. Particularly at the end where he says, Now you know who I am, don't you tell anybody. Because they still don't understand what this means. He is the Messiah. And he is the Son of the Living God. But they're not permitted to even talk about it because they will lie on his behalf. They will still conceive of Jesus as being this Messiah that will do his Messiah thing the way they intended to be to save the world. And so he says, Now oh, be quiet. The hint we have, though, of this mission that they're starting to just get the grasp on is that, yes, you're right, I am the Christ, I am the Son of the Living God. And then Jesus transitions into speaking about, now this, now you know who I am. This is what I have come to do. The hint is the church. I tell you, you are Petras. And on this Petra, I will build my church. You are Peter. And on this rock, I came to build a church. Now, I don't like it when pastors say, "Now look to the person on your left and shake their hand and tell them have a good day." Now, it just makes it seems artificial. A little socially awkward. Um so I'm going to ask you if you could just gaze your eyes to the left and right. And don't look up and down, you see. If you look up and down, you'll be impressed by the ceiling tile. And it is nice ceiling tile as far as ceiling tile goes, I believe. if you look down, you'll see a carpet. And that's fine. But you see what ecclesia means, church? It means assembly. Assembly. If you were to look to the left and right, you potentially could catch your eyes in the glimpse of another immortal being Another immortal being. That's the church, you see. Someone who will be with you forever. Professing faith in Christ, in the glory of God. So, yes, I am the Christ. What is it that he's doing in the world? And if you look around, you say, this is it. To the world's eyes, what is it? We gathered here because of a man named Jesus. And the rest of all history will find us to be the wise ones. And everyone else to be fools. Because this is the plan of God for the world. You are right, Peter. I am the Christ, the son of the living God. And upon this rock, I will build my church, my assembly, my ecclesia, my called ones who will come together and they will worship me. And they will be mine and I will be theirs and there will be nowhere they can go. In fact, even the gates of hell could not prevail against them. They cannot die. They cannot be broken. They cannot be separated. They will be united to me in my love, in my sacrificial giving. And you don't know yet what that means. Don't dare speak about it yet. But this is why I came. And you are right. I am the Messiah. But all for what? The church. If you want to know what the Lord is doing, that really is it. So what is this rock, he says? Some say it's Peter. Some say it's his confession. Particularly, I favor the fact that it's the Peter as confessor. The confessing Peter. That in the moment in which Peter himself says, particularly Peter, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus takes that moment in the middle of Caesarea Philippi, with the gates of hell behind him, presumably, and says, you're right. And upon this rock, Peter, and your confession of me, I will build something that cannot be undone. I will build a church and the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. It's very clear the foundation that's been laid. Peter, of course, is the leading of all the apostles. He's the one, and when you see a list of Peter, when you see a list of the apostles in the New Testament, his name is always the first. He's the one in the first day of Pentecost that preaches and thousands come to Christ under the power of the Holy Spirit for the first time. In the book of Acts, he unites the church with the Gentiles. He's leading in all these ways. He truly is, in the first century church, the rock, by his confession. But he's not the only one, you see. The structure, the superstructure of the church is likened to all these rocks. Ephesians 2.20 says, it is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, you see. The cornerstone, that one first principal stone that is laid down, of course, at the corner of the foundation, that it has to be set at that depth and at that level so it all would build out from. It is principle. It is first. It is primary. If this cornerstone is wrong, the whole building crumbles and falls. And we understand Jesus Christ to be that one principal cornerstone. And his 12 apostles, therefore, to follow suit to build a 12-stone foundation to this superstructure we call the ecclesia, the church, the assembled ones. We know that even most particularly. Revelation 21 we're told that John saw Zion coming and he saw it as a great city, a walled city with 12 foundations. And the 12 names of the 12 stones of those 12 foundations were the 12 apostles, Peter being one of them. This is the image of the structure. But the problem is, particularly for us, we don't have a very high view of the church. This is how it actually works. People say, yes, I'll be part of that church for about a week. Or then someone will offend me and I'll go somewhere else. And I'll be nameless and I'll just pop into another church and all my problems and all my baggage and everything I have will be forgotten for at least another week. Right? That's not the church, you see. Now, the church doesn't have authority like the world does. But people falsely claim or assume that, therefore, because the church doesn't appear to have authority, That it doesn't have authority. But it does have authority. Look at what he says. The power of this church that Jesus Christ has built. He says this. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This image of being a key bearer. It's a steward, someone who's not the king, of course, who Jesus is, but the church has been given the keys on his behalf to delegate. Isaiah 22 points this out, that there is the keys who are the king of David, but there's a man named Eliakim who is able to steward the keys and unlock and open on behalf of the king, with the authority of the king. The phrase here, the ESV translates it, shall be. It's actually a future passive. It could, and I think even better translated, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loosed on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Or shall have been loosed in heaven. Please understand. Church has been given the word. The Church has been given the sacraments church has been given the power to actually exercise church discipline. And there is no authority, believe me, in this church apart from that. And there is no authority in me or any of the elders, particularly even of this church, apart from the perfection of this. That if, as stewards, only stewards, not kings, we don't make the laws, we don't decree the laws, stewards are just faithful to the words of the king. And so being faithful to the words of the king, we say... By the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do not be reconciled to your brother, then you are not forgiven of your sins. And we have reason to treat you as a Gentile and a tax collector and to excise you, to lock you out of the church. And Jesus says, well, for you to be binding and loosing in that way, according to my word, it actually is only properly reactively representing what is reality in heaven. It's a prolepsis. It's a foretaste. That if the church were to say, you are not in a line with the Lord Jesus Christ, you should consider the fact that it has already been determined that way in heaven. That you are not in line with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the church were to say, according to the word of Jesus Christ, the church is being a student of Jesus Christ, given the word of Jesus Christ with the sacraments and the discipline, that the church says, you have trusted in Jesus Christ and the gospel. Therefore, you are open. The kingdom of heaven is open to you because it is already the case that you have been loosed to the kingdom of heaven. It is not as though the church determines what's going on in heaven, but as though the church reflects the reality that already is perfectly persistent in heaven or obtaining in heaven. So there's authority there. Tremendous authority. What is authority apart from going to wage wars and tax people? That's one thing for about 30 or 40 years. But eventually we all have to die. And there's only one institution, we're told, the gates of death cannot prevail. Tremendous authority to say. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? You are open. Do you not? You are closed. This is actually present on the earth. That the Lord has created. To say all this. I've spoken. With people many times over. Myself. Included to have this type of fear of death. My my prayer this week, particularly in preparation for the sermon, they, that the Lord would be gracious to us as a church uh, to free us from this fear of death. Even over the past year or so, there have been many people I've spoken to that have this, and I don't know if it's something I'm more aware of now or if it was something the Lord has done to our culture in some ways through COVID, um, that there's this, Tremendous fear of death. And also panic and and angst that almost seems to just rush upon. We all know this. Some of us wrestle with it more than others. Some of us are more conscientious than others. Some of us, like, would be entertained watching paint dry. I'd be there. Some people think about really important things all the time, and I am pleasantly don't all the time. And I'm not maybe that worried about stuff as I should be. I don't know. But the reality of the gospel is this. The reality of the gospel is this. It's a play on words, you see. Petrified. It could mean to be scared. Or it could mean to be calcified and turned to stone. Are you petrified? 1 Peter 2.4 As you come to him living stones... That building we heard about, where Peter, its foundation stone. As you come to him, this is Peter talking in his letter, as living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. You could either be petrified in your fear, most principally in the fear of all fears, is the fear of death, or You could be petrified with Peter. It's a living stone. Stoned in with him as Jesus Christ, the cornerstone in the church. In which we are told principally, there is no fear of death. I was camping years ago. I was younger, maybe a teenager. We went up north to this uh, cabin. uh, It was fun, fishing, pretty much an annual thing. It's a big pond there, where lots of other people would uh, be fishing, or hiking, or kids riding their bikes. And on uh, the side of that pond, there was a very large stone in which a, a massive uh, copperhead uh, snake was coiled up, uh, resting in the sun, sleeping in the sun. And one who was with us um, grabbed a very large stone, held it super high above the head, high as possible. We don't know how long this thing is or how fast it is. So you got to hit it once and landed it and killed it on the head. Its head was full of poison, it was fat, sated with poison. Death was in its veins. Jesus is in the far north, Caesarea Philippi, Jerusalem, far down. And he says, Listen, I'm building a church. Gates of hell will not prevail. The Messiah has to crush the head of the serpent. He knows from this point in the rest of the gospel is Jesus doing nothing more than going from the topmost north to the bottom, the belly, and the south. He's going straight down to Jerusalem. He knows that he will be rejected and tried, condemned, and crucified. Yet, of course, we also know, Psalm 18, 118 says, the stone that those builders in Jerusalem rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus says that death cannot prevail against his church because the very cornerstone and foundation of the structure of his church was the stone that landed right there on the head of the serpent. To subdue Satan and all of his death and condemnation and anything he could say about you. Though therefore from the cornerstone out there is no way death can prevail against his church. He put that high point from the top of the city in Caesarea Philippi to drop down into Jerusalem and end the thing finally. This is the church of Jesus Christ. It is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ which has landed underneath it all, the death of death and the death of Christ. That is the cornerstone, and we are built upon him. Dear Father God, let it be the case that we understand the building that you have made. Oh Father, that stone, the son you brought into the world, that stone who was rejected, was killed and crucified. That is our cornerstone. You have brought the death of death and the death of your son. That the gates of hell will never prevail against us, Lord. Lord, we ask in this particular prayer that anyone here who is beset with an unneeded demonic fear of death. Lord, that you would free us. That you would keep us free and petrify us with Peter as one of these living stones that may never die. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand?